what a week. It's been, um, I think the news broke today on Stripe's $95 billion uh, valuation. That's a hot one and particularly relevant to partner ecosystems, given the fact that uh, Stripe is basically, you know, a platform for other companies to um, develop their products and services on. And then just in the article I sent you from Bessemer, that was what the cloud market is now valued uh, in SaaS at $2 trillion. Uh, Calling it it Mount SaaS has overtaken Fang, right? As uh, the primary driver in the market. Yeah, I think uh, Mount SaaS, um, which is the different side of, uh, you know, Fang is, uh, I think outperformed Fang by a factor of three over the past or four over the past, uh, three years. So, um, we, we actually have someone on the call today that might know a little something about that, given that, uh, we need to add this to the ticker of Mount SAS, um, which is Laura Padilla of zoom. Welcome Laura to uh, partner up. Well, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. What's, what's your take on, um, you know, cause you've seen hyper growth, um, and it kind of a couple different formats and led partner organizations, <laughs> but like, what's your take on, um, you know, Stripe's, uh, valuation given that they're, you know, kind of platform level, your CX level. Um, what was your take on that, uh, announcement? Well, Stripe, first of all, is an awesome company, super innovative, super cool. Um, I guess not surprising since the world of cloud has just exploded and then everything is just more intertwined and cloud is the way to do that. I mean, it's the web that weaves everything together. So if you think about how everything's moving online, whether it's, um, you know, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency to NFTs, you know, everybody's selling, now <laughs> yeah. or, you know, non, you know, fungible tokens, everyone's selling everything's everything. The world is virtual in general. So how do you actually monetize that? And Stripe is going to do that. I think they're looking to monetize the world in every flavor. So, um, no. So, no, I guess I'm not surprised. Yeah, I think it'll be. I mean, it's, it seems inevitable that we'll be talking in just a few years. I think it, it was 70% year over year growth, too, which is you don't see yeah. trillion dollar markets growing 70% year over year. Like, I I don't know that there's a parallel to that. There's really not. Right. Maybe maybe cryptocurrency itself. But um, uh, well, we grew. You're at the. Zoom grew more than that, but yeah, that's you talk about <laughs> <laughs> well, your growth you story is, is is its own meteoric rise. Well, I, I think at that yeah. scale, though, whenever you're commanding, um, I, I actually think Zoom could be a that big of a company someday, powering communications at uh, you know that kind of scale. I mean, you know, yeah. in this is actually an interesting question um, that isn't necessarily related to partnerships, but before we come back in it, just given this mountainous movement in SaaS and this recogni- uh, recognition that's happening, where do you think Zoom fits on the maturity curve? Like wh- where, I think it would be interesting to just kind of hear like how you were thinking about it as a, you know, an executive at Zoom. Um, wh- what's the longer game that the rest of us don't necessarily see? Yeah, no, that's not, that's an awesome question. Um, okay. So when Zoom started, everyone was like, what? Another video conferencing platform? You've got WebEx, BlueJeans tried their thing. You know, you have all the other uh, platforms. We don't need a new one. You know, this isn't effective, right? Um, And so I think every single market is, is ripe for disruption in some way, which Zoom obviously proved that when you look at the overall just video conferencing and how you communicate market. Now, as we're kind of entering more into a platform and everyone uses this this term of platform. So what the hell does that really mean and all that? But I think what it really means is you're looking at the world in more ways to connect. Right. And you're thinking about how do I open up all the different ways that my product works with different ways that different services and software also works. Um, 
So when I think about like our video engine, what actually flavors or, or makes our video conferencing solution meetings, which is our core bread and butter work, how do we actually take just the video engine out and let gamers use it, right? If we actually think about, you know, uh, we've now, it's only about two years old, um, seems like forever ago, but it's only two years old, our Zoom phone product, and we've entered kind of this UCAS market. That is not a new market. You know, you've had Ring Central 8x8, you know, lots of companies in this market. It's not necessarily new. However, we do think it's ripe for disruption and how they have done it, right? And I do think for us, this whole platform story of, hey, if you want the video engine, if you want pieces of how you communicate in the cloud and thinking of us more as a communication OS, right? And how you're able to do that through our APIs, through our SDKs, making us more open. Um, we're already seeing disruption in telemedicine, telehealth, how education works, financial services. You know, and I get pinged all the time by different companies, oh, super cool ideas about like, hey, you know, can we use Zoom for this application? Or, hey, you know, um, I have this different vertical and, you know, I just want to use your video engine to be able to plug it into a certain application that I have to be able to do that. So what you're going to see is us opening that up to a lot of different flavors versus just an application and selling just that app. But I'd love to dig into that step further because as we all have seen, Zoom has moved to become a household name, like the, you know, almost synonymous, like Kleenex for tissue papers. People now say Zoom as the default for, you know, digital communication and, and especially video conferencing. And I'd imagine with that has come a lot of opportunity to, for partnerships, for alliances, for integrations. How have you narrowed your focus or opened your focus to say, man, of all these opportunities we could have chased this last year and we're chasing right now, these are the ones that we need to focus on right now and are most important. Well, it's, yeah, no, it's been a journey. So I've been at Zoom for about three years. And when I started, you know, it was just kind of a concept, oh, we need partnerships, right? And there really wasn't, uh, it was what really wasn't baked. And so what we've done, we've kind of looked at it in four different ways, right? Four different flavors. One of them is your standard resellers who just want to resell the product, no, no modifications, and just want to offer it to their customer base. The second one is, you know, through our service providers, so telecommunication companies themselves, like the AT&Ts and the OBSs, the BTs, who actually want to integrate our meetings platform into their connectivity networks, right? And use you have their audio on the back end. And then also as they offer broadband and different things to their clients, how can uh, we be a part of that overall solution? Um, the third is um, through Zoom phone, there's this, there's this um, incumbent telecom consulting industry or um, consultants called the master agent community and referral partners. Um, we just saw them about a year ago and they're off in, and they know UCAS in and out. They've been selling that product in and out um, for years. Um, and so they're off now recommending Zoom to their customers want to move from on-prem into the cloud, as well as maybe migrate from an existing cloud solution into Zoom. And the fourth one, which is one I just talked about earlier, which I'm really excited about, is more of this platform sale, right? More of an SV integrated sale is, is brand new. And a lot of that came from COVID. Like um, you look at, um, you know, on Zoom is a product that we offer now for prosumers. So, and I call it a COVID baby. Because, you know, what happened during COVID, everything got shut down. And then certain professionals like your yoga instructor, you know, I don't know, your guitar 
teacher, um, you know, name it, who would have students come see them in their offices, didn't know what to do anymore. Right. And they were like, how do I host, um, you know, continue my business and host all these students and continue education um, um, and continue my business, but now virtual. And so as a result, we launched on Zoom. So all these professionals can sign up, easily launch an event. People can pay online, you know, and do all that online. And it's all integrated versus them trying to figure out all those different pieces in a disparate way. That's just one example. But um, the platform sales piece of the business, um, you know, we have all these independent software companies, all these ISVs coming to us and saying, hey, Laura, you know, I want to use your APIs and your SDKs and I want to be able to integrate into an existing service I, ha I have to enhance it, right? Or I want to create a brand new offering for a market. Um, and we're seeing tremendous growth just in that. And that's where um, the productization piece comes into play. Yep, Jared. Interesting. Um, what I'm curious about is, so at Drift, we did the same thing. So Justin and I are both at Drift and uh, we integrated with Zoom in a couple different ways. So we can drop Zoom links into uh, the chat experience. And then we can also, um, we have a product called Drift Video for Async. So like recorded videos, mm -hmm. but we'll actually take the, your Zoom recording and publish a, a shareable video that has chat baked in, which is, you know, some novel use cases. And I, I will uh, say that uh, I'm copying... Zoom was Sequoia funded, correct? Uh, a few. I believe so. On Sequoia Emergence, there's a few VCs, yeah. Right. So I think uh, so there might be some shared Sequoia blood between Zoom and Drift in that uh, okay. DC, our CEO, and I think Eric, we're often talking about these um, two macro trends, which is like chat, right? Like the fastest growing B2C companies ever, Snapchat, WeChat, mm -hmm. WhatsApp, yeah. Instagram. And then conversely, the fastest growing uh, B2B and even B2C companies, you know, the YouTubes all the way to the, you know, Zooms, there's these big macro trends and we've seen that kind of integration happen. I I'm, I'm curious what things have come out of these conversations. Like when you were building the platform play and COVID kind of accelerated, I'm assuming that the number of integrations that you've got has been explosive over the past year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the number of integrations, the number of partners is just thousands. I mean, just coming out every day, there's more and more partners coming out. Now, like immeasurable, like oh, yeah. almost, right? So like, how, how do you measure it? I think that's kind of where I was trying to take this is this, this macro trend is so big and your rise to the top was so fast. Like as good as you are, could you plan for this? Um, so so let me answer the first question, monetization first. Um, so, and I've We're been doing excited. partnerships for a long time. So there's, I would say there's different ways how you define value from partnering, right? There have been at companies where it's been, hey, we just need to integrate, right? Um, and so we need an integration play because there's a gap in our product offering or there's different use cases that we don't account for. So I have to partner with company A to be able to do that, right? And then you measure success by that is by how many customers are actually using that integration, right? And that use case adoption. So that's kind of what I would say the traditional partner method has been kind of that, right? And most of my career um, has been around that. Um, and that's very closely partnering product management, actually, in sales. You know, um, what I've seen in the SaaS world kind of, um, you know, and the second way that you then, the second big bucket is just revenue. 
right? And so when I think of the API stuff we were talking about, there's kind of, and I'm at two, there's lots of flavors, but I'm just going to put two big buckets out there, right? One is an ISV partner who wants to integrate and monetize that integration, right? So what we do as have partners is say, I want to consume this API, I'm going to build a brand new service, and I'm going to resell this bundle, brand new offering to my consumers, okay? For that, they actually purchase from us, and they act kind of like a, a reseller in that they can buy per minute the API, or we actually offer per seat, right? Depending on what their what API they're using, if they're using our instant SDK video engine, which is per minute, or if they're actually licensing the whole application and integrating it, that's more per seat. Okay. Is that OEM powered by gray label, white label? Is it both? Um, it's It can be all of those flavors. It depends on how okay. you want to present it, right? But yeah, um, some of them is just an, um, an white label OEM. You don't see Zoom at all. Some want to co-brand with Zoom and say, you know, drift powered by Zoom. You know, maybe they'll want to have that on it, um, you know, or some of it just co-branded, whatever that kind of looks like. So there's different flavors. Each partner is a little bit different on what they what they want gotcha. to um, with that. Um, and, but the fact that when we now have these APIs and standard APIs and SDKs and we're building more and more, it allows partners just kind of plug in, right? And it's not a huge lift on the engineering side. What we spend a lot more time on is much more on the validation side with partners on, hey, is this use case make sense? Does your integration work? Developing a dev account for them, making sure everything's operable and production ready before they actually launch to their customers. And so there's a lot of revenue there. So if you think about like Twilio, you know, Amazon Chime, you know, some of the other partners who also offer um, and sell their APIs, you know, in kind of some of that flavor, um, you know, we're also um, offering that up. And so there's revenue there. Um, and then we have the Zoom app marketplace, which today is more, you integrate and you publish. There's not monetization today, right? And that will eventually get there. But I would say if I had a bucket, two ways to value partnerships would be the first one I said, which is just, I got to integrate because it makes sense from a product and use case perspective. I'm just going to monitor the consumption of this integration and usage, right? And the second thing um, is actual revenue, right? How do we monetize this integration? And, you know, they're acting as they consume and they're reselling. So then we charge them for that. When do you think that, there, there had to have been a shift at some point in Zoom's trajectory where partnerships were more strategic, one-off to some stance being taken that we are going for platform. Was that while you before you joined, or was that did that transition happen after you joined? Um, I would say during these three years, that definitely happened. I mean, you know, when I started three years ago it was obviously before IPO and all that. Um, we were still. Yeah on just selling the application and the service, right? And making sure that we're getting traction for meetings and then talking about building and launching Zoom phone for a complete UCAS offering. That was more the discussion point. Then as we've evolved and now gained traction, now we're saying, hey, you know what? People are using us for so many different things, right? There is a need for more of a communication OS, right? How do we actually make ourselves open and more than just this service, that you buy packaged up, you know, I mean, one thing that our, our products are amazing. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we've been so successful, you know, is just the way the product has been architected and built. And I think that we're able to now offer that up in, 
you know, micro features or feature sets so that people can use that in different ways. I'm curious about the, the culture shift that might've led to that decision. There's, um, you know, companies like Drift experiencing hyper growth, and we might feel like we're in a inflection point, so to speak, in terms of the dedication towards ecosystem. I'm curious if there was a point in time or an event or a series of events that you could point to where you went, Hey, this is where we pivoted you know, hard because of this decision or this realization in the market towards a more ecosystem centric, um, view of the zoom world. Yeah. Um, I mean, COVID played a huge part in that. Um, you know, I would say that about a year ago, we were, we were definitely already talking about like service providers. We wanted to double down. And the reason for that was they're going to help us grow internationally. Large global multinational companies were now coming to zoom and wanting to use Zoom across different continents and nations. And so the service providers, for example, own the network. So we were starting to have more conversations around how do we grow the different partnerships and make, and these are complex organizations and how do we partner with these organizations? So that was already happening. Um, and platform, we, are, we had some of that API um, work already happening and we were selling some of that, but what happened with COVID was everything just accelerated 10x. Think of it like accelerating three years quicker than probably it would have happened. It would have happened anyway, but like I would say maybe three years faster than it was. And the reason was because there was just so much demand from everywhere. The only way to meet that demand was having partners to help us do that, right? Um, and so that's what we saw is, is just, it was just inertia. Like, you know, everyone came and was like, Laura, you know, we've, Everyone just started knocking on my door. I, we need more partners. Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? You know, what's going to happen? How are we going to grow our international markets faster? Um, how are we going to support um, all these different use cases, governments, currencies, all the stuff that we need to do? The only way we're going to do it is with partners. Yeah. And what did you learn? I mean, I, I can imagine there's only a handful of people that have been in your role during a, a time of that kind of hyper growth. Looking back, is there something you wish you could have told yourself you know, what would have been March 10th of last year, uh, you know, prepare for this or do this differently going into the next year of scaling growth through the COVID era? Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm going to say I'm super proud of my team because I'm not going to lie. There are a lot of tears, <laughs> yeah. a lot of uh, days of people freaking out, stressing out, you know, a lot of tears, right? Um, and like, I just had to keep it together, right? For people, because um, everybody around me was like, there's no way we can you know, support this volume, right? Because we were just, we're not staff for it. Our architecture and our data centers, we were lighting up all these new servers every weekend. You know, there was like hundreds of new servers being, being turned on. It was, you know, it was, um, it was nuts. So the only thing I think I would say would be um, prioritize, prioritization is king. And I know it sounds simple, but when you have everybody throwing themselves at you and saying that this is important, um, you know, you have to really step back and say, what is the most impactful piece and what do I need to do? And and focus on those things and say no and be OK with saying no with business, business justification. So I think that's what, um, you know, I learned as a result of of this was just like prioritization is super important and leadership is super important, like being empathetic to your team. Right. And so, you know, your people during chaos and crisis are only going to follow you if they believe in you, right? And so how do you stay cool 
and calm. Um, not saying that I was always calm, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, being able to provide them direction and making sure that they believed, hey, you're steering us in the right way. And you also care about me, right? And you care about my, about my well-being because the one thing that we haven't talked about in this whole COVID thing was, you know, it was a human crisis in a lot of ways too, right? And it was, I mean, people were passing away and it was, you know, it, there was a time period. I remember I, um, I had a call with an all hands call with my team where, um, you know, I, you know, just spent the time just talking to them about how I was thinking about them and I want to make sure everybody's okay. And how is everybody feeling? And, and we spent the time on that call just about that. Right. And telling them, I need you guys to take the weekends off. I need you guys to unplug. Right? I don't want to see you guys on right? Spending time on that. And I got so many notes back from my, from individual team members, just thanking me for that, that they needed to hear that. Um, and so I would say just people in prioritization and focusing on those things, um, is what I learned the most and how, how that you do get back. Um, there's, um, there's so many lessons we could probably dive into with you just on that topic. I mean, you don't create ecosystems and partner programs and, all of this absent the people that actually care about those third parties that don't work inside your walls. I think it's very easy for companies to inculcate a culture of customer love. I shouldn't say very easy. It's more common. I think it's very difficult to inculcate one surrounding the partner world and your partner organization has to be set up to do so. Um, so uh, kudos to you on the leadership there with the team on the front line, because um, like how to lead partner teams is probably a, a separate subset of uh, conversation where we could just talk to Laura just about that because um, I, I think we we I mean we've done what this is episode nineteen now Justin nineteen you're the first person to bring up people management oh wow the first person to bring up people management um, at all so uh, go double down there um, uh, folks listening right right now um, it, it is all about people without. Um, Without people, we we really have nothing um, to service our partners and to carry the their flag into um, the rest of the organization. I'm curious, Laura how how do you think? Because you've seen the transition from like Riverbed into like you know Nutanix and then into um, Zoom and some you know hyper growth. How do you think about um, partnerships in B two B SaaS? Like define that for me because you said you have some referral partners happening. You have ISV. What is partner the ecosystem and partner world to you? How do you bucket or prioritize it and then think about building your teams around it? Yes, yeah, so there's two main things. One is sales coverage. So I partner really closely with our North America sales leader as well as our international sales leader on just the markets, right? Okay, where where do we need more coverage? And I mean from up market, so enterprise to SMB as well as geo. So if I think about my internet, the international markets, um, you know, we've uh, our international leaders prioritized markets by priority one to priority four. And so we've sat for hours, you know, in our in our plannings around, OK, how are we going to cover these markets? Um, and we know we're not going to hire thousands of direct sales reps in each of these countries. Right. We're going to do that with partners. So um, so sales alignment is super important. So. What you're going to see happening in the rest of this year, just from a pure sales coverage perspective, is more investments in distribution partnerships and straight value-added resellers in specific markets who have the right competencies, have the right coverage models, feet on the street, um, skills, and commitment to Zoom. And so those are things that we're launching, like in 
the German market, for example, you know, um, right. see with Deutsche Telekom, for example, in Japan, we have an amazing relationship with SoftBank, right? SPCNS, um, their division, which is a distributor division of SoftBank, you know, doubling down with them in that market. Um, and then, you know, for example, in, in Australia and New Zealand, we have other partners similar to that, right? And so international is huge on the sales side. Like we really needed to find the right sales partners just for coverage and reach. Um, and domestic, so that's one area. The other area is, um, you know, is uh, the product side of it, right? So when I'm, I work really closely with our product management team and, and every one of my jobs, um, I spend a lot of time with my engineering and product teams. When it comes to partnering, you have to understand the products really well and you have to understand how the pieces fit. You have to be somewhat technical. If you're hmm. not, then you're not going to be good at this job. That's just how it is. Like when I hire, my favorite hires have a product management background and they want to move into business. Those are my favorite hires in this role, just so you guys know. Um, and so when I'm working really closely with product management, you know, that's really corporate strategy. Hey, so where are we trying to grow our product set? Are we going to build? Are we going to buy? Are we going to partner? What are we going to do around that? Most of the CEOs I've worked for have been former engineers who have built the products. You know, um, Eric, Dirigent, Nutanix. I worked at Box before Aaron and um, same thing, Riverbed. It was right. Yeah. All driven from, um, you know, CEOs whose teams built the product. So they tend to like to build themselves just because they're engineers and they're product guys. Right. Um, but, you know, my role is to say, hey, it makes the most sense in these areas if we're going to grow our product set to partner in these ones. That It doesn't make sense for us to build that. Right. Um, and so we just prioritize. We'll say, hey, you know what? We need like at Zoom, we'll say, hey, we really need to partner with uh, Box, the Dropbox and so forth for cloud sharing. Right. We want to build with Slack a, a partnership around, you know, more chat channels. Right. And more sophistication around that. What, how do we keep expanding this concept of cloud collaboration with our partners, right? And so then um, that's the second set of it is like, how do we work closely with the product leadership team around, you know, integrations and partners to just expand our reach and our use cases for customers as well? So if I have two, two big buckets, sales, sales alignment is key. How do I align with my sales leaders and what they need? And I partner for that. And that usually aligns closer with the revenue return. And you have a quote. I, I have a quota. I actually run a partner sales business unit. So I have a number every year that I have to hit, right, to help support sales. Um, and then the other side of it that I also run is the BD side of the house, which is much more around integrations and strategy and so forth. And on the digging into the conversations with product and do those integrations end up in the same roadmap as the product roadmap or is it separate? How do you communicate with the field and so they can communicate with the customers? What are we integrating with? Who are our new partners in this space? Uh, and what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, from a, like um, if the APIs or the integration points aren't there, then yeah, they'll end up in the roadmap, right? And they'll build those APIs so that our partners can plug into. Either there's two things. One is they'll build a universal API so that we can have multiple partners, the same type, just plug into that same API for scale. Um, or in the case of like Dropbox, for example, we actually built custom integrations with them because to us at that point, we were we deemed them a strategic partner and we thought the return merited it, right? And what they were also doing, and they did the same thing on that side as well. So there can be partnerships that'll merit just a custom integration 
um, just for that reason. But again, there's usually a lot of modeling around that and, you know, justification uh, for the engineering resources. Yeah. Sound familiar, Jared? <laughs> yeah, we've seen, a, we've seen a little bit of that. We've seen a little <laughs> bit of that too. Um, we've done some, uh, I think our our uh, sumo, so to speak, has been uh, typically Adobe on our side of the house. Has been our kind of like primary uh, partner upstream. Um, I'm I'm curious for so you have these two buckets, which you know sales and then uh, like the BD side um, on the integration, uh, ISV tech alliances versus uh, traditional channel, maybe referral resell. I'm curious if you have a framework for a couple different things, or if you have some thoughts that you might be able to share, given that you've seen the story from earlier stage partner program to more mature or even you know industry leading, right? At Zoom, I could certainly say that's industry leading in um, the communication space. People often talk about market product fit. Whenever you're thinking about partnerships, I never hear someone think or talk about like market partner fit. Because maybe some channels or some programs are very applicable to some companies and not others. And then some types of partners, right, like resellers, VARs, right, are completely unapplicable to other companies. At Zoom, it seems like you're touching every vector. Have you thought about that or do you have any frameworks or you know thoughts around how to help companies start to have that conversation or maybe first-time partner executives think about, okay, my first job before telling my CEO I need more money for more headcount is establishing where I want to invest. Do I have market partner fit? Mm-hmm. No, that's a that's an awesome point. Okay, so overall market product fit, and you think of like the VC world when someone's trying to launch a new company and they think, okay, there's an existing market there for this product. I'm going to disrupt it. Or this is a brand new market and I'm pitching you to invest in this product because I'm going to create a new market. And there's arguments both ways, right? There's arguments in like, that's way too hard to create a brand new market. It's going to take too long, too risky, not sure, right? Oh, existing market, huge opportunities for disruption. And we've seen so many examples of that over the years, right? Um, from VMware way back in virtualization, right? To, to Zoom, right? And just the video conferencing kind of world that sometimes that's easier, right? Because you think there's a market there, there are buyers for this. I just have to have the best product, right? So when I think of partnerships in that vein, if we're saying, hey, there's a market there, right? And the product is there, um, then, you know, how do I partner to accelerate this adoption of my product? That's how I would think of it, right? Um, and if we look back at um, the things I talked about before, if and I've been at tiny startups where, well, first of all, I had my own company. So like I've been the only person selling something. So I know what that is like. And then I've been at incubation for a, a small startup as well, where we were just 10 of us still at uh, Sequoia, actually. Um, and then I've been at the mid-sized ones like Zoom. Okay. And I can I can have a whole discussion just on my theories on when to go into a company and all that kind of stuff. That's a whole other that's a whole other podcast. But we need a four, we need four like a four-part <laughs> yeah, right. saga with Laura here. <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, if you, if you were at a, let's say a a small company, okay. And they hired you as their first BD person or a partner person. And they said, Laura, I need you to help me. I'm going to hire you. My advice would be figure out what they're hiring you for. Because (laughs) what you're going to find is there will be a million different opinions. And even at existing companies, I've run into this with the exec team will say, 
you know, like, oh, the value you're providing, you ask one, they all have different opinions. on you. Okay. So my first advice is ask what they're hiring you for, because they will have an opinion for that. They're hiring you for a reason, right? And either one, they're going to say, hey, man, I really need you to help me sell more. Okay, cool. What does that mean exactly? Right. Um, and if that's the case, then what I would probably do first is align with the sales leadership and understand the product. Now, if the product is this very complicated, expensive, hard to sell thing like a BI tool or something like that, right? I think my argument there would be the way I'm going to help you sell first is probably through integrations, right? So like there's a lot of, you have to, let's say, certifications with the SAPs of the world, the sales forces of the world, like open myself up so I can get into those different customer bases because they see the certified stamp, which is a lot of what I did at Nutanix, honestly. You know, like I got to be certified with the right, all the standard hardware platforms, all the virtualization engines, all of that kind of stuff, just to know blockers from my sales team to go sell me into those existing customers, right? Um, now, if it's more of a product like Zoom, where, um, you know, it's easier to sell, to understand, it's more at the line of business user, um, price point, you know, it's OPEX per month. Um, I would do kind of what I started is like, hey, I could probably help you a lot quicker if I start building out this robust referral um, network of partners who are just going to go out. There's tons of IT consultants who work on SaaS who want to make money off of being able to recommend you. And they can do they can learn Zoom pretty easily, right? And start getting out there in the market, right? So again, um, you have to understand your product, what you're trying to do. Right. And where are you being blocked from a sales perspective or how you can accelerate sales? So it's not an easy answer. Like, you know, for me, I look at I really spend a lot of time on the product piece of it. That's I, I love your answer, because one of the things that I think people don't realize whenever they get into partnerships or maybe they're a veteran is that most people are speaking from experience meaning there's no go-to-market model for partnerships and business development. Like there's no degree, there's no book, yeah. um, yeah. there's no path. I mean, there's so many different things for marketing and sales for like how to, how to build X function or go-to-market in B2B SaaS. But the reality is the more people that I talk to, the more I realize that your ecosystem is bespoke to the company. It's based on your yeah. market opportunity, how your product works, and every ecosystem is different. So you have to have these like general knowledge and then be able to translate that into, you know, what worked for you at Nutanix is not the same that's going to work for you at Zoom, but being able to recognize the differences to go, I'm not going to come in here and implement the safe playbook. It's just such a fascinating thing that we, we need to share more knowledge of and um, really appreciate you doing that, Laura, uh, for, the, for the community. Well, that's why this is also fun, a fun job, right? Because... <laughs> Um, I, it's never the same thing. That's why I've loved it because I've done, I did marketing when I first started out in tech and, you know, after a while, it's like, it's kind of boring, same thing over and over again. And then, uh, did a little bit of sales and then I kind of landed in BD and alliances and I actually really loved it. Cause I'm like, wow, I'm talking to the legal team about contracts, negotiating that have to understand the product side of it. I have to understand marketing. I have to understand sales. You know, you have to understand all these different things. And I think that's why this is such a fun job. It's really cool. But to your point, Jared, it is also complex. So you kind of have to really understand all the different pieces and, and learn that you're, there's no one straight answer for it. 
this is where I think the folks that have started to test market partner fit and they have, you know, some people sending you some deals, some referrals, your sales team starting to engage. Um, you have some integrations. You're like, wow, we, we really could have an ecosystem here. Then what ends up happening is this translation from the company operating model and financial model into, okay, what the heck does this messy ecosystem, how does this fit in? I'd love to hear your opinion on, you know, because your specialty is kind of like the build to scale, right? Like there's some basic validation, like let's build this and then scale. How do you work with finance or operations or translating your world into an operating model that kind of spits out some form of results or headcount? Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, um, so Zoom, um, is very bottom line focused. Like we have a really amazing, uh, team in finance. Our CFO is awesome. Who really looks at how are we profitable? How are we making money? And, you know, to get a headcount approved or anything is like an MBA in itself. I joke because uh, we have to go through so much stuff. So, um, what, um, what I would say is it depends again on the ecosystem. So like I talked around, uh, like this master agent community, for example, that we launched, right. It's a commission model. So anyone who sends in a lead, if we accept the lead, right, we're going to pay them a commission on top of how we sell it. That is not a cheap model. That is really expensive. It's almost, you could think of it as almost like, um, an incremental expense onto every customer deal. Right. And so um, we did a pretty comprehensive model for a few months, actually, on payment structure versus output. So how much revenue did I have to bring into the company? And I layered in my headcount and my expenses. So everything from like sales incentives and so forth, right, to merit that expense. So we did everything from looking at, okay, what if we, the commission model was 5% versus 15%, right? We pay, maybe we did a spiff up front, but paid less residual, you know? And so we spent a lot of time doing that and I got a number as a result of it. You know, they said, okay, great, Laura, we've landed on this. This is competitive as a program. Your partners are going to be happy. We don't pay the most, you know, but they're going to be content with this payment structure, but I need this much in return from you. And we just had to sign up for it, right? And so, um, you know, that's the other thing too, is that, you have to be okay with performance, you know? And, you know, there's been a lot of, like what we've been talking about, a lot of different BD or alliances teams, right? And I've been in some where like the, um, there isn't as much rigor on ROI, right? Um, as, you know, Zoom. And I'll tell you, Zoom is extremely rigorous around ROI. That's one thing I would say I've learned a lot here is that I'm constantly thinking about like, all right, if my expense is this much, what what's the return going to be, right? And how am I going to measure that return um, as a result of that? And that's just straight financial modeling. So I have a person, FPNA, who I work with, and he does the models for me when we go through it. Got to build that partnership, uh, not just between sales and product, but also, uh, you know, financial planning and analysis, um, the finance department and um, work on that um, earlier than probably most folks think, because that's how you um, uh, sign up for a number. Right. And, um, well, and start it, to influence the headcount. Yeah. And also you, it also helps you tell the story, you know, cause there was a, there's always perception that like, oh, the channel, you know, is really expensive. We have to pay partners and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't make sense. But when you actually plug it into a model and you say, wait a second, let's talk about you hiring this many direct reps, you paying them stock, you paying them benefits, 
you know, you then you have marketing on top of it, right? Versus a partner that you're gonna have some MDF funding, you give them a discount. What is actually, is it really that much more expensive? And when you look at it, it really isn't, you know, especially when you look at different uh, different markets, it really wasn't. So that also helped my story a lot to say, no, that's not accurate. When someone would say, oh, you're too expensive. No, I'm not actually, let's look at the numbers. And that's why you need the model because you can kind of explain those different vectors like customer acquisition cost. The structure of that's very different in your world versus the direct world. Um, right. I, I'm curious, does is there any um, vector where you're looking at like net retention or churn at like the other end of the funnel where you're, you're saying like, hey, here's why we're investing in, you know, integrations, for example. And here's what happens whenever we see seven integrations or two or whatever many. Here's what it does to, um, you know, the bottom line, which results in, you know, X amount of dollars, we should make Y investment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a huge part of the story. I mean, churn is much lower in partner deals than it is direct. 100%. Like, and by a lot. It's not marginally. And that's one of the big stories that I've always told too, is like, hey, when you partner with partners, um, we're stickier, there are deeper seated relationships, they're less likely to rip you out because of those relationships. And the numbers show that churn is much lower. Interesting. Are you looking at, um, you mentioned at the beginning of the call, things like, you know, weekly active users inside of integrations. Have you come up with any modeling around how to drive from like a customer success standpoint, even on the direct side. So let's assume a partner didn't bring in the deal, your direct team sold it. Mm -hmm. But as you're evolving and seeing this platform play happen, kind of like right before us all, like a year ago, I think we launched the integration with Drift. It was like right at COVID time. Um, Are you starting to see some trends around company health and what's happening from an integration perspective as well? Uh, do you mean that if I look at the businesses that have integrated versus that haven't? Right. Like kind of doing some cohort analyses, I think is that's what I'm trying to get out from someone who might've seen scale is that a lot of ISV managers fail to look at some of those like cohort analyses, like what types of integrations, who's active, are they actually using it? Right. Like there's a bunch of ways to measure whether or not it's impacting churn. Yeah, absolutely. We're just starting to do that. Um, and like, I'll give you an example, like our instant SDK, um, we give 10,000 free minutes, right? So developers can come in, they can start playing with it. They can use those 10,000 free minutes to actually do the dev work. And then after that, they have to convert into an um, to, into a paid account and pay us for those minutes. And so I literally just had this conversation with my team where I was saying, hey, that's a measurement for us, right? First of all, they sign up for these minutes. Are they using these minutes, right? If they're using them, they're never gonna turn, turn into a, a paid user, because they're not using them. So one of our programs um, that we're gonna build with with our teams is talking to all those partners who are not using the minutes and say, hey, you signed up for this account, you're not the, why are you not using the minutes? You need some help? You know, does a developer advocate need to sit with you? Do you have any questions around the documentation about your dev account, all that kind of stuff? Because absolutely, if people are not consuming your product, they're higher likely to churn. And so we have definitely have a whole team at Zoom just on our application side around that, looking at all those metrics and so forth. And they do uh, look at that. Like we have a CSM team that helps part um, customers when they onboard um, to make sure their consumption is high. And we do look at that. And then those are tied to churn numbers as well. And we're just starting to do that on the API side as well. That's fantastic. Um, maybe one question to round it out for me on thinking about how maybe you've done this in the past or at Zoom, 
part of um, the challenge that I've been personally running into is understanding what needs to be centralized functions versus embedded functions, mm -hmm. right? So there's, uh, I built this crazy chart. Justin still thinks I'm crazy for building this. Um, this Have you heard of Miro? Miro, like the workflow planning tool? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's gigantic. It would take up the entire size of my wall back here. Like it's it's huge, the actual file okay. of like tech partner programs, service partner programs, all the centralized resources, and then the embedded resources across product, marketing, sales, et cetera. Um, do you have any philosophy on centralized versus embedded resources and like what functions need to be controlled by your team versus partnership that you need to develop with the internal team? That is always a very complicated question because every company right. does it different and, um, and there's different philosophies. I think, look, I think the bottom line is if you have a culture of collaboration, not politics. And Ooh, there's then, a one-liner from you. And yep. I think, <laughs> you know, I would say you don't have to focus on that so much, right? Um, and the, that's an awesome thing about Zoom. We're all very flat and everyone works really closely together. I've worked at other organizations where that wasn't the case and you cause a lot of conflict, right? Like you're um, like, you know, I worked at one company where like the, the partner marketing team didn't really feel they wanted to take direction from me. They're going to do what they wanted kind of thing. Right. And so it was constantly this, this conflict of like priorities and what we're going to be doing and roles and responsibilities and all this kind of stuff. And it was like, whoa, what a waste of time. Right. And so in an environment like that, I would have said, I'm pulling that in to report to me because I'm tired of this conflict. It's not working. Right. Um, but then I've had other organizations where there wasn't that conflict and it didn't matter. So culture has a lot to do with that answer, I would say, unfortunately. Um, now, the pieces that I think make sense to centralize either way are like um, like the um, like at Zoom, I own the partner programs function. So really, you know, how are we defining the partner program? the program requirements, the benefits, what partners are signing up for, all that kind of makes total sense for the uh, partner leader to own that just because you want to have a hand in what you're defining and building. And so that I definitely centralize and it's a global function. Um, and we own every partner flavor, right? So the way we're building it is, okay, I have a, um, a lead for partner programs globally and he's hiring someone who's on DISTI and reseller programs and owns that and leads a team for just that, someone who owns our service provider partnerships and ISVs actually, because there's a lot of integrations there, someone who owns our program around uh, master agents and referral community, and then special programs. So we have kind of leaders around each of those ecosystems defining all those different programs. And then we review that. And I actually um, also own uh, partner operations as well. And I decided to just roll that in on my team just because, um, we were collaborating so much, it kind of just made sense to do that as well. Um, and that can go either way, you know, at other companies. Um, but um, but like traditionally, uh, marketing, SEs, um, you know, those uh, product, all those other functions, I think sit fine in the other teams, as long as you all collaborate well together. Like, you know, um, at Zoom, you know, I have an SE team just dedicated to partnerships. And I work with the leader and he and he's marrying his headcount according to how I'm growing my team. Right. 
Um, and then we worked really closely together. Same thing in product. Um, we just hired um, a lady who is going to build out the partner program. Sorry, the product management function for partnerships. So actually, that's all she's going to do, you know, and own just that. And it was a huge gap, by the way, because before that, you're just begging for product managers to work on your thing part time. You know, right. that's really, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, it's very painful, you know, Um and so what I've tended to do around that, once there is product management managers aligned to either a specific product or ecosystem or solution, I usually tend to pair up a BD person with that product manager. So let's say like at Nutanix, we had a product manager just focused on backup and recovery. I hired a BD person just on backup and recovery, for example. And that person worked with that product manager and they built out the ecosystem, made sure all the integrations worked, made sure the product roadmap was aligned with all our partners, made sure all that kind of worked on like the tech side of it. So again, it, it depends a little bit on how the organizations are structured, but the most important thing is it's a, the organization is collaborative. Um, you're kind of working step in step. Um, and then you're being also, you have to advocate internally. Like you have to really advocate and sometimes fight for what you need and be vocal about it. I can't think of a better way to end. Uh, Laura, this has been an absolute blast. But before we go, I, this is the standard plug. If you want to follow along in the conversation, make sure you come join us in the uh, Cloud Software Association. Um, so come join us on Slack. There's 4,000 partnership professionals. And the only way you're going to learn is by uh, listening to folks like Laura and collaborating and taking those lessons into the community and kind of seeking some feedback from peers. So come check out the Cloud Software Association. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on your Alexa device, Hop over to uh, YouTube too. We're also there. Um, so you can see um, Justin's amazing hair. He's always got much better hair than me. Um, it looks pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. <laughs> and um, uh, make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and leave us uh, a uh, great review with content like Laura. How could you not? Laura, thank you so much um, for joining us on Partner Up. And we will have you back because this was, there's like five tracks I want to go down here with um, with everything that you said today. It was such a fantastic show. Awesome. It was awesome to meet you guys. And thanks so much. It was super fun. Awesome. All right. We'll see you next time, partner up. You guys. Okay. Bye. All right.